When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Five hundred years ago, on Shrove Tuesday, the 4th of March, 1522, Anne Boleyn made her first recorded debut at the English court. She'd returned from France sometime in late 1521, having been at the court of Francis I since 1515, and before that at the court of Margaret of Austria in Mechelen in the Low Countries. At these courts, she would have become familiar with Renaissance masks and courtly entertainments, when she returned to England, she joined the household of the Queen, Catherine of Aragon, and as one of her ladies, took part in one of these familiar masks or pageants called the Chateau Vert, or the Green Castle. Here's how the chronicler Edward Hall describes it. On Shrove Tuesday at night, the Cardinal, the King, the ambassadors made another supper, and after supper they came into a great chamber hanged with arras. And at the nether end of the same chamber was a castle, in which was a principal tower, and two less towers stood on every side, warded and embattled. And on every tower was a banner, and this castle was kept with ladies of strange names. The first, beauty. The second, honour. The third, perseverance. The fourth, kindness. The fifth, constance. The sixth, bounty. The seventh, mercy. And the eighth, pity. These eight ladies had Milan gowns of white satin, Every lady had her name embroidered with gold on their head cores and Milan bonnets of gold with jewels. Underneath the base fortress of the castle were eight other ladies, whose names were danger, disdain, jealousy, unkindness, scorn, malbouche, strangeness. Then entered eight lords in cloth of gold caps and all, and great mantles of blue satin, and these lords were named amorous, nobleness, youth, attendance, loyalty, pleasure, gentleness, and liberty. The king was chief of this company. Then the lords ran to the castle, and the ladies defended the castle with rose water and comfits, and the lords threw in dates and oranges and other fruits made for pleasure, but at last the place was won. Then the lords took the ladies of honour as prisoners by the hands and brought them down and danced together very pleasantly. Among these ladies, the part of perseverance, or what we would call perseverance was Anne. To mark this anniversary, Hever Castle have opened a new exhibition exploring Anne's formation to 1522. It's called Becoming Anne, 
Connections, Culture, Chord. And I went to Hever to speak to its creators, Dr. Owen Emerson and Kate McCaffrey. It is a delight to be sat in Hever Castle with Kate McCaffrey and Dr. Owen Emerson to be talking about their new exhibition and their new book. What did you want to try and achieve with this exhibition? Yes, as you say, we really wanted to celebrate the anniversary of Anne's first recorded debut back in England. And we wanted to use that as an opportunity to examine her life up until that point. The end to Anne's story is very well known, as is her time at the English court. But her life before that point, her childhood, her youth, her early education is very rarely celebrated. So I think we really wanted to use this anniversary to highlight all the different facets and factors that made Anne into the incredible, intelligent, cultured woman and courtier who took England by storm 500 years ago. Owen, you wrote a book with Claire Ridgway called The Berlins of Hever Castle, and we're here in Anne's childhood home. Tell us about the Berlin family. The Berlins are very well associated with Hever, but we know that they didn't originate from here. We can trace them to Norfolk, and they weren't the most noble family at court, but they had done incredibly well. So over three generations, they had amassed enormous wealth and fortune and solidified their accomplishments by marrying very advantageously. So there are a number of very good marriages into the nobility. And Thomas Boleyn is, I would say, a pivotal character. He is a gifted linguist. He's a humanist. And he provides very good opportunities for all of his children. Now, Anne was one of several siblings. Some didn't survive to adulthood, but there are three that did. And one of the items in your exhibition is a dedication by her brother George Boleyn to Anne. What does this tell us about the relationship between the siblings? I think it tells us a huge amount, actually. I think they were incredibly close, and I think they shared values and also shared a great bond and love. I think we know less, perhaps, about the relationship between George, Mary and Anne, because Mary is a slightly more opaque character in the records. We only really have one letter of Mary's in her own words. But what that letter does show us is that she is very well educated. She is a determined individual. She's very Berlin. And I think the siblings were as thick as thieves, to be honest. Challenged each other in terms of culture and faith. And they weren't averse to falling out. There were several famous altercations. But I think they were very similar in many ways. I like the idea that Berlin might become an adjective. Very Berlin. (laughs) Someone's brilliant and fiery and opinionated. (laughs) Kate, you have in the collection here at Hever Castle portraits of many, actually, of Henry VIII's wives, but particularly of Anne and of Mary. And one of the items in your exhibition is an amazing reconstruction of a dress that Anne is wearing in one of those portraits. Tell us about that and about the decision to recreate it. 
Yes, we're really lucky to have on loan, as you say, a beautiful reconstruction of a dress that Anne is wearing in what used to be in a hall portrait. It's now been moved up to what was supposedly once Anne's bedroom. It's a sketch after Holbein, and in it Anne is depicted wearing a gable hood, which is perhaps not the most obviously Anne of clothing. She usually is seen to have favoured the kind of French fashions, the French hood, which showed her hair and was seen as a bit more risque. But in this drawing and in this portrait, she is depicted in the more English fashions. And so we thought it was really interesting to have this reconstruction, which has been generously loaned by Karen Davies and Samantha Rees, who created it and just beautifully demonstrates the kinds of fashions that Anne also would have been wearing. Obviously, she was greatly inspired by her time in France, but she wasn't limited to only their fashions. And it's likely when she did arrive back in England, she also adopted the English fashions as well. And that takes us to what we know of her formation. So we call this her childhood home. How many years do we think that she was probably living here as a child? It's very likely that all of the Blinn children moved here in 1505, depending on when you think Anne was born. That would mean she was either born here or in Blickling in Norfolk. I believe she was born in Norfolk. And it's likely that she remained here until 1513. And she probably wouldn't have seen much of Hever before she returned to the English court. But we know that Hever really comes into its own during the courtship years. This sort of acts as Anne's safety valve, her private sanctum where she can escape the heat of scandal at court and be private and perhaps do some planning and receiving of correspondence. And I think surely the fact that she was here from what you and I are in agreement was probably about the age of four to the age of 12, 13. It's quite important in terms of creating that image in her head of this being home and this being the place of her childhood security, don't you think? Yeah, I think very much that's why we love the phrase childhood home, because I think this does seem to be a place that Anne would have known fondly as a child and it makes sense that then she returned here in her adulthood during the struggles and turmoil of court life that she would seek refuge back at this place that she felt safe and was home for her. Now you mentioned the controversy over when she was born and a key piece of evidence in that is a letter that she sent to her father from Laveur in Mechelen near Brussels where she had gone to spend time with Margaret of Austria. And then after that, 18 months later or so, she's off to be in France. Let's talk about that letter, because you've got a copy of it as part of your exhibition. What does it tell us about Anne? I think it tells us a huge amount about Anne at this time. It's a really beautiful letter in terms of sentiment to her father. I think it shows a real love for him actually and it recognises how important Thomas has been in her education before she arrived at Margaret's court and how keen Anne was to maintain a level of education that was perhaps expected of her. She talks in the letter about the orthography of her letter, she apologises for the spelling but I love the fact that she wants him to be assured that they are her words that this is her effort. And she indicates that previous correspondence she's had help with from Simonette. But this letter is her understanding. 
And I think it's a really remarkable survival, actually, because we don't have any correspondence from Anne for quite some years after. And I think the fact that it was kept, it must have been kept, I think, by Thomas. When I saw it in the flesh, it's still got very defined crease lines. And I feel it must have been kept for a reason. I think there must have been perhaps some pride on the part of Thomas for her composition of this letter. So yes, it's a really vivid insight into Anne and it's lovely to have it here. And we haven't mentioned that it's actually written in French. Kate, this speaks to the education that she had along with her siblings, an education really fine for a woman of her age and her attempts to impress her father. It is very sweet. I think so. The fact that Anne is desperately trying to impress her father shows as well the kind of full hopes and expectations that were probably on her as this 12 or 13 year old who goes to Mechelen to this very prestigious court of Margaret of Austria where the royal nieces and nephews of Margaret are being educated so she's really amongst such elite families of Europe and so for the Boleyns to have her there in the first place orchestrated by Thomas and his professional and personal relationship with Margaret, I think is a huge testimony to him, but also I'm sure Anne felt that pressure to perform for her father and to make the most of the experiences. And I think she obviously really does and goes on to the French court next and continues to impress. So she was dispatched to France in order to serve Henry VIII's sister, Mary, when she had become Queen of France. It doesn't last very long. And then most of the ladies go home, but Anne stays with Claude of France. And in your exhibition, you have a series of miniatures which speak to Anne's time in France. Can you tell me about those and what they indicate about what we know of Anne's experiences? Yes, so the miniatures which were graciously loaned by Owen for the exhibition are wonderful to have on display and they show some real key players during her time spent in France. So we have figures such as Claude of France, who, as you mentioned, Anne, went into her service. She was the Queen of France, married to Francis I. We also have Marguerite d'Angoulême, who was the sister of Francis I. We have Francis himself and we have Louise of Savoy, who was the king's mother. She really was a power behind the throne. And I think particularly through these women that Anne was surrounded by in France, I think she must have taken so much inspiration from them, all in different ways. I think Claude, perhaps, she learnt less about leadership and politics from because Claude was constantly pregnant and quite shy and timid. But I think from Claude, Anne would have been exposed to a lot of art and culture and literature, which we really see she takes forward. Through Louise of Savoy, we see, I think, Anne's inspired by her female use of authority, the kind of wielding of political authority by a woman. And through Marguerite, I think Anne takes a lot of inspiration in terms of her religion. Marguerite was a famous patron of religious reform, which we obviously see Anne also carry through in her lifetime. Did Edison really take credit for things he didn't invent? Were treadmills originally a form of corporal punishment? And would man have ever got to the moon? Without the bra. You can expect answers to all these questions and more in the brand new podcast from History Hit, patented History of Inventions. Join me, Dallas Campbell, as I uncover what really sparked history's most impactful ideas. 
Each episode, I'll be recruiting the help of experts, scientists, historians, and even a few real-life inventors. Subscribe to Patented History of Inventions wherever you listen to your podcasts. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Anne's faith, of course, will become very important in the story of her life and indeed of this country's history. But actually, the books that you have here speak in the first place to some of the conservative background of faith. They are beautiful things, though. Owen, tell me about the books of ours that you have here. I think they are the treasures of our collection. And they send shivers down my spine. But you're right, they do talk to the complex nature, shall we say, of Anne's own individual faith. The first of the books is a manuscript, and it was created in Bruges, circa 1410 to 1450. So this is likely a hand-me-down book. This is very common. It was probably handed down to her from someone like her mother, Elizabeth Howard or even her grandmother, Lady Margaret Butler. It's handwritten, hand-illuminated, and you're right, it's a traditionally Catholic text. So I think both of our books can give us access to Anne's developing religious ideas, and I'm going to let Kate talk to you about the second book of ours because she has done some incredible research into it. Yes, Kate, you've come on this podcast before and anybody who hasn't heard that episode with Kate talking all about her research must go and have a listen. But remind us of what you found in the printed book of ours. Yes, so I was lucky enough to work with the printed book of ours for my MA thesis a couple of years ago and I uncovered four further inscriptions within the book that weren't previously known to be there. So it was previously thought to contain only one note, which is Anne's famous rhyming couplet, remember me when you do pray that hope doth lead from day to day. But that was thought to be the only note within it. And I found four further inscriptions from various noble families who also lived around Hever. So again, local to the kind of Kent area where Anne grew up. And yeah, in terms of her religious development and the books, I think they are really interesting because, as Owen said, they're traditionally Catholic texts. They're written in Latin predominantly. 
but some of my work with the printed book showed the kind of tactile nature of prayer at this time. Obviously, people were feeling the pages as they prayed. They were rubbing the illuminations, rubbing the words as they engaged with them. And actually, we do have English prayers in our printed book of hours, which is not uncommon for the time, but is interesting knowing Anne's passion for the written vernacular and for religious texts. And actually, compared to other copies of this same printing, the English prayers within Anne's book are incredibly worn, which suggests that she was engaging with them more so than the traditionally Catholic Latin prayers. Oh, that's really interesting. And also that it was a book that was printed in France. It's from 1528, is that right? 27. 27, yes. So it has been produced for an English market with these English prayers, in, but it's in France that we've got this kind of innovative printing of liturgy in English. Yeah, it's really interesting as well because Germain Hadwan, who's the printer, he very rarely printed for an English audience. And actually this book is the first example that I've found of him printing for use of serum, so for people in England. And I have to speculate whether Anne had something to do with the commissioning of these books. Obviously having spent seven years in France, being around religious literature such as this, and then suddenly Hardwan deciding at 1527-28, which is such a pivotal moment for Anne, rising at the English court, he suddenly decides to print for the English court in English with prayers. It's an interesting connection that I'm definitely exploring further. Now, we've talked about the influence of various people in France in terms of her religion, but what other sort of skills and qualities did Anne acquire in her time on the continent that she brought back to England in 1521, 1522? I think if we look at her love of art and culture I think we have to appreciate how rich it was in France. We know for example Claude loved portrait miniatures we know that she was a patron to artists as was Francis so when Anne arrives back at the English court people do you know quip that she could have been mistaken for a French woman. So from that, perhaps we can assume that she is initially perhaps adopting the French fashions, that she perhaps has an air about her, maybe even has adopted a French accent. I think she must have looked and felt different. And we know that Anne isn't the best looking woman in a room, perhaps, but there is so much more to her than that. And she has, I would say, a very fine intellect. She can command the attention of a room. And when things do get very heated at court, even her adversaries can't stop looking and listening and reporting everything she says. I think there was something magnetic about her. And I think that came from her time abroad. Yes, she was clearly brilliant in the sense of having very fine mind, being very good at wordplay and wit, but also in, in the sense that she dazzled. She clearly was charismatic in that way that film stars can be. They just walk in and every head turns to look at them, whether they're good-looking or not. That seems to have been Anne's characteristics from everything that's been written about her. She reminds me a bit, actually, of Wallace Simpson, in that she divided opinion like no-one else. People either loved or loathed her. She had great style. We know, for example, lovely little detail from the Chateau Vert that Anne actually keeps her dress, for example, whereas other 
players don't. I think she had something about her that it didn't matter whether you loved or disliked her. You had to keep watching and people were fascinated by her. Now, she was coming back to serve a Spanish queen who was Queen of England at the time, also a glittering woman, Catherine of Aragon. And one of the items in your exhibition is a portrait that has hitherto been identified as Catherine Parr, but in this exhibition you are asserting that it's actually Catherine of Aragon. Talk us through that decision. Yes, so we acquired this specific portrait back in 2004, and it was labelled then in good faith as Catherine Parr. There's still some historic debate about the identity of the portrait, but we are renaming her as Catherine of Aragon for this exhibition, and that is primarily due to the research that has been undertaken by the National Portrait Gallery into the Lambeth Palace portrait, which is the same version as our one, and they dated that portrait to circa 1520, which would make Catherine Parr at that point only eight years old, so it seems far too young to be Catherine Parr, and actually looks more likely to be Catherine of Aragon. And what's exciting about that date for us with this exhibition is that this is the face of Catherine of Aragon that Anne would have gazed upon and seen and been in service to when she returned to the court 500 years ago. So let's get to that moment then, the moment where we first see Anne Boleyn at the English court in the sources. She was probably there before, but when she first appears in the sources is in March 1522. And In what is she appearing? So Anne is making her debut in a pageant and it's a Shrovetide feast, shall we say. It's a number of events and there is a theme throughout the pageant of unrequited love and the culmination takes place in Cardinal Wolsey's great chamber at York Place and plays the role of perseverance in this pageant. And essentially, there are virtues that are being kept prisoner in a green castle, and they are held captive by vices, and Henry VIII and his men charge in, pelting the vices with sugar plums, and to the sound of gunfire from outside, they liberate the virtues from the tower. Henry VIII clearly does think he's a medieval knight sugar plums or not there they are getting rid of the evil ones and saving the women but interestingly there are lots of virtues aren't there beauty and kindness and honesty Anne isn't chosen to play any of those she's chosen to play perseverance or perseverance which of course will turn out to be historically very apt indeed It really is. It couldn't be better casting, really, could it? And there's some interesting casting as well. We've got Jane Parker playing the role of Constancy, which to previous historians may have sounded ironic because she was always marked as the betrayer of the Boleyns. But there's been something of a renaissance in the study of her history. And actually, I think her casting was rather apt too. I think she was a rather loyal wife rather than the great betrayer. So yeah, some great casting that day. Yes, so we've also got Kindness is another one which was played by Anne's sister Mary, which I think probably also is quite an apt casting. I think 
all we know of Mary, she seems to have been rather gentle and loyal and kind. And then you also have Beauty, I think is another famous one, who was played by now the Dowager Queen of France, Henry VIII's sister, Mary. And obviously she becomes quite an enemy of sorts. She doesn't approve of Anne's relationship with her brother going forward. And I think that's what we always think is interesting about the Chateau Ver pageant, is you have all these key players in the room at the same time, not knowing over the course of the next decade how positions are going to change. So it's a really exciting moment. And among those must have been, I would have thought, Catherine of Aragon, because this is all done for imperial ambassadors, isn't it? So, as you say, everybody who's going to be on the list of Dramatis Personae of importance over the next decade is there. The stage and it's is all set. Ready to go. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much for talking to me about this exhibition of yours, which is one of the first that Heva has done. Yeah, first in a long time, yeah. It's a really welcome addition to the visitor route. And, and it will be the first in a series of exhibitions over the next few years. So. I think Kate is saying that just to get it on record, so it has <laughs> yeah, to happen. So it has to happen now, <laughs> so watch out. And it's certainly worth coming to see all sorts of wonderful goodies here, and it's ever a pleasure to be here. So thank you for welcoming me once again, and do everybody come and pick up a copy of Kate and Owen's book, Becoming Anne. Thank you. Thank you. Joyeuse vous dans l'oreille by Claudin de Sermussy, sung there by Jay Britton, who I spied earlier dressed as Anne Boleyn and singing beautifully live in the inner hall at Hever Castle. Thanks to Jay for that. And thank you so much for listening to Not Just the Tudors. And there's plenty more on Anne Boleyn where that came from. We now have almost a hundred podcasts that we've created since last April, all available for you to listen to again or even discover for the first time wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also have your additional weekly booster jab with our Tudor Tuesday newsletter with news of History Hit's best podcasts, articles and films. Find out more at historyhit.com.
history is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.